Hey guys, it's Clay Reichenbach. Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. Today will be a bit of a change of pace from our typical themes. However, our guest is wildly interesting and I think you'll find the topics we cover lead to many universal lessons. My guest today is Randy Hawks. Randy is the co-founder and managing director of Claremont Creek Ventures. He's been in the technology space for nearly 50 years, spending the bulk of those years in Silicon Valley, working with, leading, investing in startup ventures. And though I seldom refer to it, my background and my expertise is actually in investment, structuring and negotiating deals and operating businesses. So I was extremely eager to speak to Randy and pick his brain for a while. This episode will obviously be interesting to entrepreneurs, to investors, to business minds of all types, but I really think any engaged listener will take something valuable away. Randy has just a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience, and he also has a real talent for sharing his message, which you'll hear. And I'm glad he does because I came into this conversation well under the weather, not feeling very well. But fortunately, Randy more than carries the load. Randy, thank you so much for sharing your time. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with me. I so enjoyed our conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Randy Hawks. Start with where you grew up, Randy. So you grew up in Arkansas, small town in Arkansas, not necessarily the finance or technology capital of the world. Was there any sense from a young age that you were drawn to the technology space, the investment space, or maybe even just risk taking in general? Well, Clay, I appreciate the question. Thanks so much. It really was happenstance as much as anything. As uh, as a guy coming out of a high school in a small rural town. I was interested in technology, frankly, had gotten into the technology piece because I was in a typical high school rock and roll band. And we were always having to repair cables for our guitars to plug into the amps, that kind of stuff. So I got into general, a little bit of electronics and and interest in electronics that way, coupled with I was pretty good in math and science in high school. And so it seemed like a natural fit to go on into engineering in university, I went to University of Arkansas, was an electrical engineer, and then launched off into my double E career. The two things that I mentioned to friends and family that sort of launched me on my career. One is, again, I was a pretty good study, and I managed to test into some honors courses in the things I wasn't good at, like English and composition. So I got to skip a lot of things. So I graduated in three and a half years. So I was coming out as a degree electrical engineer. I had just turned 21 and uh, got hired as a computer research engineer at Cornell Aeronautical Laboratory in Buffalo, New York. So first thing is I came out young compared to some of my peers. And then secondly, it was just as the what became known as the personal computer or distributed computing, mini computers were just taking off. This was 1972, 73 timeframe, mostly mini computers, but separate from big mainframe computers. And then a few years later, the personal computers, Apple, Atari, the IBM personal computer was launched in 1980. And I was just getting my sea legs as a computer research engineer as the technology wave around small computers was taking off. Semiconductors have been around a while, big mainframe computers uh, since World War II through the 50s and 60s, but many computers and then small computers taking off right as I was hitting the stride in my career choice, did well, lucked into some jobs, moved quickly as an engineer. Turned out I was a better marketing and management guy than engineer, so made the transition over to marketing and then general management, and then moved to Silicon Valley uh, in 1982. And the rest of my career has been out here in the Silicon Valley area. 
Coming out of Arkansas, you mentioned the University of Arkansas. Were you much of a planner? Did you have a plan in your head, even from a general sense of what your career would look like? Did you have aspirations? Good question, but not really. It It's a developing sense of what you're good at, what you'd like to do, what options are there. And one thing I preach to some of my family members is keep the doors open. You won't have options because you're never quite sure what's going to work out. And in my case, I developed a natural affinity for computer work when I was in my double E uh, undergrad program. I was really good at doing the computer simulation stuff, not so much doing the deep science, electronics, physics, that kind of stuff. It was more about computer programming, and I really enjoyed it. As I went into my first job, it was a natural affinity, and I looked for places where I could explore that. And at the same time, those job options were really exploding at the time. When I left the university, I ended up with only a couple of job offers. My dad was worried about it because he didn't think I was getting enough job offers. He made sure I had a job offer from the local school district to come back and teach math and science at the Blyville High School in Blyville, Arkansas. I didn't take that job. I went to work in Buffalo, New York. But then as I changed jobs, oh gosh, what was that? Two and a half years into that, I was looking at other things. I ended up with like 15 job offers. I mean, just everybody was wanting this kind of skill set I had as this part of the industry was taken off. And I followed my own inclinations in choosing the kinds of companies, the kinds of opportunities. And as I began to realize I was much better in marketing and ultimately general management than sort of the technical side, although I understood all the technical stuff. Um, And so it was happenstance with some good thinking around optionality. I like that idea of having lots of options to choose from when it's time to make a decision. I like that. I was quite the opposite. I've always been such a planner and still am to this day. I I don't recommend this strategy to young people, but I subscribed <laughs> to Forbes magazine in seventh grade of all things and planned out how I'll I be their youngest it. subscriber. Oh, I was going to be on the Forbes 400, Randy, and I have yeah. this plan. And I tell people that that's not really a great strategy. There's a lot better ways to set goals than be on the Forbes 400. And I think it's more like what you were talking about, find a passion, be very, very good or great where your feet are. And that's a lesson I kind of learned late in life. And now that I have this affinity for psychology, I've read quite a bit about goal setting and confirmed that's not a great way to set a goal. But (laughs) you're mentioning happenstance a couple of times. Did you start to see that entering the technology space would put you on a fortuitous path when you're seeing the computers come out? Are you seeing the future? Are you clairvoyant somewhat going, hey, wait a second, this path could lead me in a direction I want to go? Well, um, clairvoyant may be too strong a a word. Certainly, I, I saw the burgeoning of opportunities and much, much stronger than when I say first got out of college. I saw that this was a, a opening field, how big it was going to be, and could I predict you know, the advent of the IBM PC when it was introduced and all the other things that have gone on. I wasn't that smart, but it's sort of like a surfer catching a wave. They know the waves are there, so you start gliding down the surface, and it's pretty natural to understand that waves happen and you catch a good one. And that happened. At the moment, it was a good situation. I knew the jobs were there. I knew the companies were doing well. What I didn't know at that time was the startup economy, which now has been uh, sort of Silicon Valley embodies that whole culture. Didn't understand that as well. I was still in the corporate world, corporate research groups, worked for Texas Instruments for 10 years, early on as an engineer, then a systems engineer, then a manager, then a marketing guy through my part with TI. But it wasn't until I got to Silicon Valley in the early 80s that I began to understand the entrepreneurial culture. What does it take to leave your corporate job and take a dive off to start a company with uh, no payroll, no no money in the bank, no benefits, but you're going to change the world? That took a little more learning, but I watched it from afar. Let's jump there. So if my research is correct, you had a successful career in the corporate world before deciding to move into the startup space and then eventually venture capital. 
I'm really interested in this move from a typical path to an atypical path, from a comfortable path to a non-comfortable or a risky path. The way I'm envisioning it, which correct me if I'm wrong, is this is a leap of faith from the corporate world to the startup world and a leap into uncertainty, a leap into, if I'm being frank, a probability of failure if you're joining a startup from the ground up. Most people don't have the courage to take that leap. What separated you? What gave you this belief? What gave you the courage to jump in this world of uncertainty? Well, several answers to that. Play and, and first, I'll um, respond that it's not quite the leap that you would envision. I'll describe what's different about Silicon Valley and what it takes to make that leap here. But going back, there are some fundamental underpinnings that happen. I grew up from a strong family situation and a small businessman, a dad, and I always knew, hey, if everything else fell apart, I could go back and work at the sales counter at my dad's businesses and do other things. So I knew there was a safe base to always return to. I wasn't going to be homeless on a street corner, busking for dimes kind of thing. And that really helps. So a strong family underpinning, which lets you know you can then have a base to then take some leaps if you choose to. Secondly, I was pretty confident in what I knew how to do and what I was good at and things that I didn't know how to do and wasn't particularly good at. And I, for what I could see in the overall environment, my skill set and abilities we're pretty bankable at the moment. Doesn't mean my startup, for example, would be successful if I did one, but I know how to get a job. I know how to do what I do and earn a good living at it. So I didn't quite worry about that. But the, and the, what I did at that point was to decide to move to Silicon Valley. A headhunter had called me up. I was getting some press at the time. I was a marketing manager at Texas Instruments, getting a lot of articles and comments made, gave a couple of speeches, that kind of thing. And so a headhunter came after me to come out for a VP of marketing job into Silicon Valley. And I jumped at that opportunity to move the family to Silicon Valley because I saw, as best I could predict, that was where the wave was going to crest. That was where the big action was going to happen. I loved Austin, Texas at the time, lovely place to live. Texas Instruments was a great company, but they were having problems. They were losing their middle management talent. Guys like me in their early 30s who were the up-and-comers were bailing out. The guys that formed Compact Computer in, uh, in Houston came out of my TI group. <laughs> Numbers of guys that were leaving, although TI was a great company and Austin was a great place, there were other opportunities to move outside. So I went to Silicon Valley. And the thing that's different in Silicon Valley, and I said, this has been one of those intangible things that people around the world have had trouble replicating because many people try to create an equivalent Silicon Valley, the Silicon Prairie up in Minnesota around uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, in Germany, they've tried to they keep trying to replicate it because you have high class educational institutions, you have lots of capital, you have really smart labor force. Why can't I create a entrepreneur? Uh, environment. And there are two things that I see. There are many of them around, but there are two things in Silicon Valley that are hard to replicate. One is the ability to fail and still come back and raise money and be successful. If you do that in Europe, you raise $10 million of somebody's money and you lose it and go bankrupt two years later, at least in the past, you'll never raise money again. It's just a black mark. In Silicon Valley, that's not a black mark. Now, if you did it for the wrong reasons, you had fraud or you did, I mean, that's bad. But if the market shifted or the technology didn't prove out the way you thought, but you couldn't make it a go, it was an investment opportunity that you didn't realize, but it was a learning experience. So let's go find the right one and do it again. So that's very common in Silicon Valley, hard to train that into a culture that doesn't have that. And the second thing is the ability to tolerate risk. When you want to go home and you tell your spouse, I just quit my job, I'm going to work at half pay with no benefits, and your in-laws want to strangle you because you put the family at risk. In Silicon Valley, half the people on your child's soccer team sidelines are doing the same thing. Everybody's gone to a startup. They've all done it. Everybody's saying, way to go. Good for you. It's the kind of risk that is culturally acceptable and understood. And that makes it much easier in Silicon Valley to make that leap 
than other places. And I think it's unique to embrace those things, to embrace failure. And I know you're downplaying a bit and it's helpful to have a base to leap off of. But once you're in your 30s and made a little money, it doesn't feel real good to go back to your hometown and work for your dad. So there's still there's still uncertainty. There's still risk. There's still doubt. That moment is what I've come to call making space for greatness. I think you can do a lot of good things in comfortable spaces, but being great is not one of them. You have to find that pivotal moment where you take a leap and it may put you back on your dad's porch asking for a job, which is not a fun place to be. To choose that career path, in my mind, requires a high level of equanimity, which you may disagree with that. I'm assuming you have that. What are your strategies for dealing with second guessing, doubt, and what are anxious, heavy moments? Well, you cry a lot and you drink a lot. <laughs> I like that. I can do that. I can definitely do that. The, um, I do think I have a particular skill that I compartmentalize very well. If, if I can put things in a box and close the box and not worry about it for a while and go solve some other problem and go take some other. So I, I tend to have a personal skill of being able to compartmentalize things and not deal with them when I'm not ready to deal with them. And that works well for me. My current partners in this stage, latter stage of my career will tell you I'm a micromanager. When we found that our investment firm, I had, there were three partners. One partner is the big blue sky thinker. Why is the sky blue? Why couldn't it be pink? I'd like to make the sky purple today. It thinks about how can I change things? Why can't I? And if there's somebody I want to go talk to, well, I'll just call them up because they're, they're going to take my call. You know, it, there's never a bridge they can't cross. Other partner was a financial whiz kid, computed spreadsheets in their head. Uh, they'd be on the eighth level of a spreadsheet before I could even read the indexes and the columns and could compute all that mathematically. But I was the trains have to run on time guy. If you want to put me in the rock in the middle of the stream, the water doesn't disrupt me. The trains run on time because I micromanage things. Not always planning to your earlier comment about planning sort of future far in the far in the future, but about today. What's got to happen today? What's my task list? Knock it down get it done, keep nose to the grindstone. And I typically was first guy in, last guy out of any job I ever had, because that was just my method for making sure everything got done. So that actually worked real well in our investment world that we got into. We'd have blue sky thinker, a mathematical whiz kid, and a guy to just make sure everything happens. And we made a good team. And so I've always had that ability, compartmentalize, and grind it out, get things done, and make sure the trains run on time. Those two personality traits sort of define how I attack stuff. And I understand electronics and science and technology, but those are personality traits I identify with. Well, what I'm hearing and what I identify with coming from an athletic background is if you're on a good team, and not just a good team, a team that complements your assets, maybe assets you don't have, it makes anxiety easier to deal with. It makes difficult times easier to deal with. I mean, you even spoke about the community of Silicon Valley as a whole, making failure easier to deal with. So I guess the lesson I'm taking away from is those moments become much easier when you surround yourself with a nice complimentary team. And I'll share one little vignette that, that I've used before. Back before I went to Silicon Valley, my last job situation at Texas Instruments, a guy had brought me to this position. He had great faith in me and knew that I knew what to do. And he put me in charge of this program to launch a whole new product line. And there was a lot of stuff that had to get done that I didn't know how to do, how to organize dealer training and field resources and stuff. But he, he assigned me uh, as part of my team. He said, here's a guy you're really going to learn to love. I won't name his name, but he was an Israeli. He had been a uh, fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force, as everybody in Israel serves in their military, got out, had his undergrad from somewhere in Israel, I forget where, went to Harvard, got his MBA, and was just a hard-nosed, military-trained, Harvard MBA, smartest guy you could ever have. And he was working for me, just the guy from Arkansas, trying to figure it out. And at first, it was a little intimidating, because the guy could think circles around me. 
but I learned the value of having people work for you that are more gifted than you are. And I learned to rely on him and point him at a task and it would come back solved. Not always the way I would have thought to solve it. Sometimes I wouldn't even know how to solve it, but he'd figure it out. And I learned to trust having people smarter than me, more gifted than me, working for me. Now, I happen to be a good spokesperson. I can stand up and speak to 500 people in, a, in an audience, a keynote speech or something, and deliver it right and get the laugh lines when I wanted it, make the emphasis when I wanted it, and you know, get the real vigor in the speech. But that guy was my powerhouse behind me, and I still to this day value everything he did in those periods because he was smarter and better equipped to go attack those problems. And from that point on, as I moved to Silicon Valley, I learned hire the smartest people you can. Hire them smarter than you are, more driven than you are. Don't be intimidated because they're smarter. They train better, whatever it is. I just, I've learned not to be intimidated by hiring that kind of talent. And it pays off when you do that. That's great. That's great. Getting rid of the ego, not being scared to surround yourself with smarter. Well, I still have a pretty big are. ego. I think I can. <laughs> you, you always think, okay, you're you're smarter than I, but I'm still a guy writing a check. I mean, there's a way to have your ego well, served too. There's there's also a way to recognize that intelligence is domain specific. That they may be able to walk through a spreadsheet, but that group of 500 people that needs to be motivated or moved to solve a problem only you can do that and I think it's important to also realize your strength and not be scared off by others let's jump into venture capital this will be the sure. uh, education moment for us all where you get to play professor for a, a bit let's start really broad what is venture capital and in your particular expertise what is seed and early stage investing well there are Lots of different definitions of venture capital. The general definition is when you're putting money to work in risky endeavors that corporations and or government don't have the ability to play in. So it's high risk, potentially high return, but also with a high failure rate. Uh, that tends to be described as venture capital. It has gotten institutionalized, gosh, over the last 50 years. Some of the early spin-outs of governments trying to help R&D work get done. There was some work done in Boston around MIT where they had learned to bring money in and deploy it on projects which might generate a commercial return. Came to Silicon Valley and the early semiconductor businesses where as the, they were successful, then they would spin out and start up a new company and some of the early money came from the people that made money on those semiconductor companies, and they would fund a beginning entrepreneur that was a known skill set. And over time, then it became institutionalized as investment firms that would learn how to do that. A big boost of that was when the Ivy League endowments decided and proved the case that they could invest in these kind of assets. There was a particular manager, Dave Swenson, that ran the endowment at Yale. For years, endowments followed the prudent investor rule. Okay, it's going to be stocks, bonds, real estate, real assets, and that's where our money goes. Dave Swenson came up with a lot of work backed up by uh, science calculations and things, but ultimately said, look, you can take a small amount of our money, 5%, put it into higher risk endeavors. And if we lose, okay, we'll lose three or four, or maybe all 5%. But if one of them turns into a Google or an Apple, we just made big hits for our endowment. And that is what opened the doors for college university endowments like the Rice has, Harvard, Yale, University of Michigan, Vanderbilt, Stanford, they all have these big endowments and they've really been able to accelerate the growth by investing a small percentage in venture capital and other similar assets, private equity and hedge funds being the other two. So they take small amounts of money, give it to investment firms who focus on doing the work, high risk, small dollar size commitments, but if one of them hits, then you get outsized returns. 
each venture capital firm would typically raise a fund of money, invest in 20 to 25 companies in a given fund. And you hope that two, three, four of those are monster returns. You lose all your money in four or five of them. You get your money back in four or five of them. You make one and a half times your money on four or five of them. But if those two or three can give you a hundred X your money back, then you give great returns back to your original investors and the practitioners of the business, the venture capital partners make good money as well. And without getting into the weeds, we don't need to get into series A, B, and C, but you or your firm typically invest in early stage companies or maybe a seed investment or a series A investment. Is that correct? It does, although the definition has changed over time. When, when I first started this business 25 years ago in the, the investing side, seed capital was $100,000 and a series A first institutional round might be a million or two million maybe three. Today, seed rounds might be up to three, four, five million, and they still call it a seed round, and an institutional Series A might be 10 million. And if you're playing to get to a unicorn, which means companies that can be billion-dollar valuations are better, a Series B might be 40 million, <laughs> and a Series C might be 200 million. When I started the business, you sort of went through an A, B, and a C, and you might be eight or $10 million all in through all the rounds. So the, the scale has changed, the dollar figures have changed, but it's always been looking for the home run hits because that's what our, our venture capital business is a hits business from the time it was created. It's just now some of the numbers have changed. Well, and for where my question is going, I think that suffices. Regardless of what the dollar amount is, you're investing oftentimes in what is largely an idea, a company with probably no profits, I think very likely no revenues. Well, it's decision-making in, in environments of extreme uncertainty. And my question is, how do you value something in this environment? And more than that, how do you achieve conviction in your investment decision? So let's start off a little bit about how you make decisions. I tell people when I'm coaching entrepreneurs or companies that I'm on the board of to go pitch somebody, I said, remember, there, there are three questions that you got to get up front of their mind and you got to get it quick. Maybe you've got five minutes to convince them. It's what do you do? How do you do it? And why you? What do you do? And how big is it? And you know, all the parameters around how could this really be wonderful? Is it inevitable or is it just? you know, likely, but I, what do you do? How do you do it? What kinds of technology? Is there something protectable? Are there patents and intellectual property? And could other people invent a similar approach, whatever? So there's all kinds of stuff around that. And the last question, but why you? What makes you or your team the most likely, the universal answer to executing this thing? There are several analogies people use. The most likely, but if you're picking a business, do you want to be a vitamin, an aspirin, or heroin? So you want something that is addictive and you got to have it. I mean, vitamins are good, it's additive, it helps you something. Aspirin relieves the pain. Yeah, and you really got to, when you need an aspirin, you really want one. But heroin adds the addictive thing. So vitamin, aspirin, heroin is sort of the way you think about the kinds of things you want it to be. Let's not start a rumor that Silicon Valley is selling heroin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Good point. Yeah, sorry, that, go that is purely an analogy, but it, and, and they all rhyme with N, you know, vitamins. And, but the issue is you really want it to be big pain, big addiction, got to have it, and it an inevitable market. Doesn't mean you'll be the winner, but you want an inevitable fit to a market that's going to be there. But people will tell you, well, what do you, what's most important? Is it market? Is it technology? And the answer is it's always the team. It's always the team. Sometimes the founder explicitly, sometimes it's the team they've surrounded themselves with because there have been a number of studies done of what were issues that happened and what did you invest in? And what you find is that 
I forget the percentages, but I'll say something like 30, 40%. The business that resulted was not the business you invested in. They had to pivot. The market changed. The technology didn't work. Something happened. The other one is like 50% of the time it takes at least 2x the amount of money they thought it would take to get there. And then unfortunately, about 50% of the time then, and the CEO that founded it's the wrong guy to run it. And at some point, you have to make that change too. And these are lessons you learn in our industry that those are not unexpected. When that happens, just understand that's part of the, the way these companies grow. They pivot, they move, they do take more money than they require. And a lot of times the starting folks aren't the right folks all the way through the growth cycle. That happens. Let's see. So the, the question of how you choose, it's about market that's going to happen inevitably and having a team that can adapt to whatever happens. Well, let me add this anecdote and then you can elaborate. Sure. Do, do, I don't know if you're a fan of Warren Buffett, but I'll always read his annual letter. And his letter, I think it was the last year, pointed out that the day that the car was invented, if you knew that the car was going to be what it was going to be, I think hundreds of thousands of companies have actually been designed as car companies, but only this handful were good investments. So even if you have perfect information about the product and the market, and you know that it's going to be the car, picking the right company is still very, very difficult. I come from a traditional equity investing background, existing companies in real estate, and I can develop the story just like you do, but then I can go to work and I can I can look at tenant rosters and I can look at financials and I can look at competitors and I can look at markets and that really doesn't exist. So you're looking at the team, but it seems to me that there's a lot of gut involved. Is that correct? There is. I mean, obviously, everybody in our business that has the privilege to invest other people's money has earned the right to do so by being pretty smart and successful. And so, but everybody, that's no competitive advantage. Every other venture capital partner, you got to assume they're world-class smart in some way. They had to, to earn the right to do this. So that doesn't buy you an advantage. Some of it's just gut. Some of it is deep knowledge on specific sectors where you can leverage your own set. Many partners, work with a big network of uh, connections, people they know that are experts in fields and they'll use half a dozen people to help them do diligence on a deal that still is not absolutely predictable. And sometimes it's just luck. I mean, I point out, you know, the Zuckerberg and Facebook, God bless them, they did their thing, but they weren't the first. There was MySpace, there was Friendster. There were plenty of people doing that. What makes Zuckerberg successful? Well, part of it, he, he refused to give up. Part of it is he happened to connect with Peter Thiel, who gave him a lot of money. Uh, and he got a lot of good advice when he moved to Silicon Valley to get out of the, uh, the Harvard world. I mean, there are other things he did, but still, there were plenty of other folks doing the same stuff. Most of the successes out of Silicon Valley aren't the only solution to a specific problem. There are other folks who are making a run at it as well but they end up being the one that wins. And in our business, you discover there's only one winner and you might get a good number two, but if you're not number one or number two, it doesn't matter. You won't be a return to investor capital if you're number three, four, five. You might exist as a company, but you're not gonna get rewarded for the, the same way at number one or number two in the market do. You mentioned the importance of the team and the individuals that make up the team. What specifically, what traits specifically are you looking for? And then the inverse, what traits are you specifically looking to avoid? Gosh, it, you know, it's, it's hard to say specifically, it's sort of, you know, you know it when you see it kind of thing. One of the things that you learn in this business is that not everybody's likable, but likableness is not anywhere on the report card for being successful. Steve Jobs wasn't very likable. Bill Gates, not very like Zuckerberg. Now they get coached. Warren Buffett, when he started, wasn't very likable. You read his, his uh, biography, Snowball, I don't know if you've read that one, big, thick book, but he was not particularly likable, didn't take care of his family all that much. He was a savant around 
quantitative analysis of businesses. And he's coached himself up. He really looks like a great grandfatherly figure now, and he speaks really good. And so does Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg's done a good job of learning that. Bill Gates done a better job, but they're not necessarily like they're just absolutely determined that they're going to do what they start out to do, and they know how to do it better than everybody else, and they're going to succeed. Problem is, nine out of ten of those guys will fail because they were absolutely convinced they were just also absolutely wrong in, in somebody like steve jobs case he was absolutely convinced everybody called him a jerk told him he couldn't do it he did it anyway and he turned out to be phenomenally successful it's hard to know those people you learn not to discount it because of personality you do want people that can learn and leverage off the skill sets of the people around them whether they've constructed their team already or whether you're going to help them do that as an investor, you're betting in their ability to synthesize and, and pull an idea together because most times it's not the business they started in. That's just part of the business because something changed. The market changed, the technology changed, something about the environment changed, and they had to pivot and do something different than they planned. So you want them to be able to adapt, smart, but everybody that comes in is smart. I mean, you're not going to get any dummies walking in pitching you for money most of the time. So you try and leverage off what we've known through our own career experience that the entrepreneur can leverage the people around them to learn what they don't know. And if they have some good self-awareness, they know what they're good at and what they're not good at. I mean, those are just some thoughts around that general idea. How do you pick people? Because it's, it's more art than science, I think. Let's get into this. I think oftentimes venture capital, specifically Silicon Valley, can get a bad rap. And I think some of that may be well-deserved. However, the reality is that venture investing is an essential aspect of any thriving economy. And it's certainly an essential aspect of any continuous innovation. So if you could speak a bit about the role venture capital plays in Maybe economy is, is difficult, but in innovation specifically, what role does it play specifically and why do you why would you say it's essential? I gave a talk. Oh, this has been several years ago now. I think it was the um, the local Rotary Club out here in, in uh, the town where we're based at here at Southern Valley. Uh, I pulled up some statistics and they changed over time. So these are probably five or 10 year dated statistics. At the time, the venture capital industry total assets under management by all venture capital firms in the United States compared to the total assets of uh, the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones all added up. Venture capital is about 0.2% of the assets. Point, so well less than 1% of the assets. But had created, venture capital had created 20% of the gross domestic product of the United States. Wow. And today, uh, you look at the number, I mean, what is it, 40%? I forget the, the number now. The largest market caps, you know, name your top side, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook. They're all venture funded. Doesn't mean that was the only way to have gotten there. Maybe there could have been other ways. But certainly in the way our economy has developed, you don't see corporate R&D generating that kind of outsized return to the U.S. GDP or university research. While it's great and does fundamental science, does not generate profit generating enterprises. So as I talk to business people, I say that's the one of the things that is phenomenal about this business is 0.2% of the assets generating at this snapshot in time, that was 20% of the GDP and I, it's higher today. Now, there are some bad things that come along with that because you, now you're driven by profit, you're driven by success. You're not looking necessarily out for all the cultural implications. It is also a very Darwinian business. If you're in our business, you succeed or you find another job. You don't get a chance to do it you don't make money for other people. You raise a fund, and if you lose money, you never raise another fund. So it's very Darwinian. It means you end up with reinforcing the kind of behavior and patterns that 
got people where they were and continue to make success. So they're not necessarily agents of cultural change. There have been articles, you know, whether they have enough, enough female general partners, enough people of color, any, all the different things there. Do they all come from Ivy League uh, schools? What about University of Arkansas, for example? So there are a lot of things that don't get changed because you're reinforcing what got them there. But it's been successful in the U.S. economy, for sure. Well, in those conversations about making space for change are taking place, and I think that's a good thing. You know, you may like this. I had it described to me in a way I found compelling, using the phrase, making space for delusion. Have you heard of this phrase, making space for delusion? I don't, I think maybe Bezos or someone, but the principle is basically that if a company or an individual for that matter doesn't make space for highly unlikely outcomes, for delusional outcomes, that you're going to get surpassed. You're not going to innovate at the pace you need to. And I'm painting with a broad brush here, but you mentioned corporate R&D. For large companies, it's extremely difficult for them to make this space, was the argument I heard. Basically, large companies want to see things proven in advance. They want a financial spreadsheet that shows what's my RR, what's my payback period, what's my multiple look like. However, the things you're dealing with in the startup world and the venture world oftentimes haven't done, been done before. Oftentimes markets have never existed before. And by definition, they can't be proven in advance, which is why there's always space for the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur needs funding to thrive. They need partners like VC firms that are willing to take substantial risks, thus the need for VCs. Is that, is that interesting I, to you at all? Certainly uh, there, there's some elements of truth in there. And sometimes the founder, the entrepreneur is just an agent in the hands of the VC. So sometimes the VC has the idea, the vision, and they're looking for a moldable entrepreneur to plug in. Sometimes it's the entrepreneur founder that has the vision and the VC is just a supplier of capital. Most of the times it's a synergy. By the way, that's how good VC firms get an inordinate share of the good deals because people go back to those superstars and they're attractive. You could get a pitch to John Doerr. Uh, again, you were talking about the Rice uh, Foundation, John coming from Rice, and John's been a successful VC through several generations of VC partnerships. So people will to gravitate. If you can get money from, get a meeting with John Doerr, boy, that's the place to go. And there's numbers of folks like that. There are other folks in our business that are just grinding out the work day by day. We're not superstar brand names, but we're out there working the territory with our own source of deal flow. But in all cases, you're creating stuff where there's a gap in the market that's not being served today, whether it's completely delusional or whether it's just not yet being served because nobody's had the time to get there. I managed to meet one of the founders of Ethereum the other day. I don't know if you know much about the blockchain space. And well, Ethereum is one of them. And one of them was the founder. He moved in next to the house we had up here on the hill. Mohawk hairdo and, uh, I don't know, bright colored sneakers. Bit of an odd guy fitting into our neighborhood. But he bought this multi-million dollar home with his wife and a child. And he's actually from Arkansas, as it turned out. But he was one of the co-founders of Ethereum. And I say, you know, what made you think about this whole idea of virtual currency, one untethered to governments? And, and he had some ideas. He said, but fundamentally, we were just exploring the opportunities and found this one that worked. It wasn't because we set out to create this for the world. We set out to have fun and do some stuff. And we happened to come across this in our discovery ex expedition. I, I thought that was sort of interesting. So it's not always that they know how they're going to change the world. It's just they don't want to be lashed down into a corporate world. I know there was a, another neighbor that lived next to me. I'll use his name. Will Wright is his name. Most people don't know him, but he was the creator of this, one of the early simulation games, Sim City, which was then bought by Electronic Arts. He made his money doing that. He did another thing. So he's created all these sort of simulation game form type things. And he's made good money doing that. But he's a child at heart. He just loves that kind of stuff. So he created a company and he wasn't sure what he was going to do. 
he wanted to create stuff and not be shackled by a company set of things and just spend his money to go investigate stuff. I love the name of his company, by the way. It still exists. Stupidfunclub.com. That's it. It's sort of like a research lab, and he just tries stuff. Robotics and some of the toy companies would come to them to say, hey, solve a problem. And they, Anyway, Will was doing that kind of stuff. I think we go back to what you mentioned at the start of the conversation is you didn't really have this brand plan. You were really interested in what you were doing and you were chasing a passion. And you may not be cognitively saying, I'm making space for this delusional outcome. I'm going to turn this cryptocurrency into the main store of value and take over gold. That may not be the idea, but at some level they are saying, I'm working on something that the probability of success is probably a lot closer to zero than it is one. And if you don't do those kind of things, then we won't innovate. And that's why you need startups, you need founders, you need VC to fund those kind of things. I think it's interesting. My partner uses a term, he talks about things emerging from the primordial ooze. This idea that there's a swamp full of stuff and eventually life comes out somehow. And he talks about Silicon Valley with that terminology, the primordial ooze. There's all kinds of stuff out there and some things will attack and eat each other and some things will mate and some things will have babies and you'll end up with life. And you don't always know what they're going to be. We end up with people coming in. You can tell them when they walk in the door, they're just interested in making a lot of money. They want some startup that they can take public or get acquired for a lot of time. And they're doing it not because they're passionate about the idea, because they're passionate about making money. They subscribe to Forbes in seventh grade, it sounds like. <laughs> it could be. But most of the time, they're not the kind of folks you want to fund to do something. Uh, you know, there could be exceptions. Other people are there just on the joy of exploration. They're just having fun, trying to find things. And they think they found a gold nugget they could pursue, so they're off doing it. But it wasn't because they were passionate about doing that. They were on a voyage of discovery and happened to find this nugget. And then sometimes you find people that were absolutely passionately focused on a specific problem. Let me share an anecdote. We had a guy come in and pitch us, and we had known him from a couple of other things. It turns out he was an electrical engineering professor at Stanford, but he'd had three friends, couples, who had lost babies through, you know, some kind of spontaneous miscarriage or something. And it was just devastating to the young couples. We need to understand why that happened. Isn't there a way? He said, well, gosh, isn't all that data available? So we started talking to bio scientists around Stanford. They said, well, yeah, the data floats around in the mother's blood and stuff, but it's, it's a really small data set in a big, vast set of data. And so Matt's his name. He said, well, gosh, that sounds like a signal processing problem. I need to pull out that weak signal of a baby's developing culture, what's happening to a, a developing baby in utero out of the mother's whole system. And he started working on that. He founded a company from a simple draw of the mother's blood can get a full data type of the developing baby as early as 12 weeks. And I think they actually get earlier than that now and do everything about what's happening with this baby. Is there a medical problem? Maybe there's an intervention that can be done to help it. Maybe there's some things you can predict ahead of time. You can also do diagnostics if you happen to have a miscarriage or something like that. And so he created this company. We invested in it. Several other people invested in it. It went public. It's a couple of billion dollar market valuation. And that was their fundamental issue was, I want intelligence about the health of developing baby by a simple blood draw from the mom while she's pregnant. And he did it not because he was trying to be a multi-multi-millionaire, not because he was on a voyage of discovery. He was passionate because he'd seen the pain of some par of expectant parents that had lost a child during pregnancy. So he was really passionate. And when he told that story, I mean, even though he's a very well-educated man and, and speaks very well, you could see the passion was still there of experiencing the pain with some of his close friends when they went through that. And that drove him to establish the business. 
took a lot to make it successful, a lot of help, a lot of money, everything else. But that was sort of the dedicated passion. I'm going to fix this problem because this impacts people. I want to take a brief stop here. I don't want to linger here long, but I, I think it'd be interesting to talk antitrust with you for just a moment. So the, the current antitrust measures seem to be focused on large technology companies buying smaller competitors and how this is bad for competition. On the surface, that makes a lot of sense to me. It really does. However, I heard it articulated a different way, and maybe you could comment on this. As a VC, that type of regulation very likely could take away one of your very few exits and thus lead maybe to less competition and less innovation. The logic being for those listening that exits lead to a liquidation event, liquidation event leads to funding that VCs then turn around and fund thousands of more competitors, disruptors, innovators. So thus taking away that liquidation event takes away competition innovation. Do you buy that argument? And whether you buy it or not, what effect do you think sweeping regulation, making acquisitions very difficult or at least more challenging would have on innovation and competition? Okay, so to respond to the, the premise of the question is I do believe there is a virtuous cycle that you put the money in, you go, you get profits, the investors get the money, whether it's endowments or pension funds or wealthy individuals, and they recycle that money. So it is a virtuous cycle to feed innovation. And I will also then make the observation, and good or bad, government is always fighting the last war, whether it's military or financial regulations. They're fixing a problem that happened 10 years ago. They're not fighting next year's war most of the time. That's just the nature of governmental work, whether it's military or or investment regulation. The challenge with antitrust, and there's certainly some issues there with people controlling their marketplaces. We need exits. Nine out of 10 exits that we get out of our investment portfolio are acquisitions. They're not public offerings. Most of those acquisitions are not a big company acquiring a direct competitor to keep them out of the market. They typically are acquisitions of either a complementary technology that this company would like to have because it will enhance its market, or there's a common term used out here in the Valley, I think it came into place with Google, called an aqua hire. You're acquiring a company that has 15 employees, you really don't care what the, yeah, you might use their technology, but those 15 people are really top-notch, and so you paid $10 million for the company, and the investors made six or eight or something, and the the principals made a little bit, but they were acquired as a talent acquisition play rather than for the technology. And both those, I think, are appropriate on their own merits. There are occasions where a big company acquires a direct competitor just to get them out of the market and to consolidate their control on the market. And I don't know if governmental regulation is subtle enough to be able to differentiate between all those. And it's true that in all acquisitions, gosh, uh, two out of three acquisitions don't work out, whether it's a corporate acquisition or a startup or a, whatever, they just, it's hard. Doing the math and getting a deal done is the easier part merging the organizations so that you don't lose that essential value that you thought you bought so that the people don't bail out, so that you keep the same momentum in the acquired company that existed before it was acquired. That is really tough. So two out of three times, you just don't quite get the results that you thought you were going to get. And I encourage some of our larger tech companies, don't think you're going to acquire your way out of a market stagnation problem. You got to innovate your way out of that. Add technology pieces as you can with small acquisitions, but you're not going to fix fundamental core problems by acquiring other things most of the time. And it is true that many times post-acquisition, if they have a success case, 
you know what happened after the acquisition, but that was because it was in a new mothership. You now have resources and capabilities that you had no way to tap when you were independent. What would have been the success had you stayed independent? Unknown. Might have succeeded, might have failed, might have pivoted and gone off to another business. So it's hard to do a comparison and to say, well, what would have happened? They paid this. There are too many what ifs that uh, you can't answer. In general, government and regulations tend to be a blunt instrument. They're not a fine scalpel going in to fix. They're a baseball bat doing brain surgery. So they tend to fix big problems, but trying to differentiate the small things that have worked well, maybe with a few downsides, is tough work for government bureaucrats. We'll move on there. I've got two more questions for you, and then I'll let you get out of here. First one is, who are some of the most impressive CEOs or founders you've come across in your career? And, and what do you think made them impressive? And you don't have to rank them. You can just, who comes to mind as impressive and, and why? Again, I'm on the sort of down slope of my career now. So some of the people I've met, I had to negotiate a contract with Steve Jobs one time. And Steve was hard to deal with, but he was very sick. He knew he was right. And he was not going to be deviated from what he thought. Didn't matter what your arguments were. So Steve is one. Uh, Bill Gates one time, we had to negotiate a contract when I was running a software company with Bill Gates. And we figured it was very reasonable and stuff. But Gates was interesting. But the man that made the place run was Steve Ballmer. Gates could be cerebral about it. Balmer would just come in. I don't know if you've ever seen him on the basketball sideline. He's a psycho, yeah. He's a psycho. And he's that way coming into a negotiating meeting. You better be strapped in and got your seatbelt buckled because that's the way he negotiated contracts. But it made a great, I thought their partnership really did a, a great job there. Gates could be more cerebral, go off and think about how's this going to happen. Stubborn as heck. Balmer brought in that explosive, almost psycho energy to make it happen. Fascinating. Uh, Were you actually uh, sitting across the table from Jobs and Gates negotiating yeah. oh, yeah. with them direct, on directly? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's yeah, interesting. Now, that's a great Now, story. most of the time, you know, you'd have a short meeting and then you get, a, you know, then you get tied up with lawyers and product line managers and all kinds of stuff. So it didn't happen, but one, but yeah, the Jobs was our biggest customer at, at one company. Uh, that I uh, was a VP of marketing at and Apple, we were providing big product to them. And then same thing, we were using Microsoft and uh, we thought we were a big deal to Gates and Balmer and <laughs> so they, they had a different view of their, uh, their work. So there, there are a lot of guys you've met once or twice in this business that really impress you. Those are a couple. There's some bright guys. We just had a fellow, you won't know him, but I'll tell the quick story. We had Two young men that founded a company. We invested in them. It was doing uh, financial payment stuff. They got a buyout offer. We wanted them to keep going, raise a little more money. We give them more money and they could make a bigger deal. But this was going to be a nice buyout for them. They made a couple of million dollars a piece. They took the money, went off. One guy had now started three other companies. None of them have been quite successful. We didn't invest in any of them. The second guy founded one company. It was in an area around financials that, that we didn't understand well, so we didn't invest. 10 years later, company now went public, $15 billion market cap, and he owns about 15% of it. So he's now worth billion and a half, big money. And he's just a guy, smart enough and, and, and articulate. But it was the right guy with the right idea, and he had it the right time. It's not always what you think about people, because they were still just young guys wet behind the ears running their company. But he did it the right way. And I'm sure there'll be stories told 10 years from now about how he was this wonderful, visionary, savant, knew the bit and all that. But he's just a guy running a company that happened to catch it right at the right inflection point in the market. And now he's worth well over a billion dollars. <laughs> Just people. I think that's a great Just lesson. People. Well, last question for you. 
and this may be difficult, but what lesson have you learned specifically from venture investing that's worthy of passing down to your kids? Well, I shared one already. It really wasn't for venture. That was don't be afraid to hire people smarter, faster than you are. Figure out how to manage them, work with them. And if they blow past you, that's okay. Because you're going to get to whatever your Peter principle is anyway. But never hesitate to have high performance, super performing people working for you. And then let them do their stuff. That's one. Second one is we talk about our anti-portfolio. What are the companies that we could have, should have, would have invested in, but we didn't? And they want them to be worth billions of dollars. Don't get confused by your ego or your checkbook. You may be smart, but you're not always the smartest guy in the room. You won't always get it right. Even when you think you've done all the right work, you're going to miss some of them due to timing, luck, whatever, hubris. Don't get caught up in it. It's a world. It's a life. It's a business. But things are going to go on just because you didn't make the big investment in a unicorn and now have your own jet and six vacation homes you, that you can't visit does not mean the end of your life. Uh, I life think that's goes great. On. I think that's a great place to end it. Randy, thanks for doing this. It's been quite the intellectual exercise. I appreciate it. It's been fun. <laughs> well, I hope it's uh, given you something to work with. I enjoy the conversation, Clay, and you, you come back anytime we can chat. I'm glad to do it. Thank you.